Well, as we begin uh, today, I'll just encourage you to think just for a moment, just to decide what perhaps your favourite smell or your favourite fragrance is. So just take a moment, just think about some of the smells or fragrances that you really enjoy. So just have a minute, just have a minute. I want you to have that in your head. This time of day, coffee sort of is coming to mind for a few people. <laughs> okay. There's a bit of a murmur. Everyone's getting it. It's good. We'll have to... A barbecue. Something. All right. That, yep. Very Australian thing to say. Thank you, Ellen. Okay. So just have that in mind as we uh, look at this passage together today. So this, as uh, David was saying, this is our fourth sermon in the series we're doing on the Song of Songs. And just a reminder, this particular book in the Old Testament is a love poem. But we've also explored it as giving us a picture of what does it mean for us to actually experience love, and especially how, how do we experience God's love, and what are the ways in which he shows his love to us. This poem in the Bible is an image, really, of what it is to know God truly and experience him. So as we look at this passage today in chapter 4, it's one of the very frequent parts of the book where the young man takes time to tell the woman that he loves exactly what it is that he loves about her. And this is something I think we're very used to, people doing this, because pop songs, you know, where someone talks about how beautiful and desirable the person that they love is, are extremely common. And we're all familiar with this kind of poetry. And in the Song of Songs, as you might know, this man reaches for every possible image to describe how much he appreciates the beauty of the woman that he loves. As we said to see today, he says, he says that she's like the taste of wine. She's like the fragrance of spices and the taste of nectar, honey and milk, like delicious fruits and the best fragrant perfumes and oils. This is how much he appreciates her and her love and her beauty. And if you read other parts of this chapter, some of that language that he uses might make um, the Bible readers blush, which is why I don't give them those readings up front when we're doing this text today. So you can go and read for yourself later how he talks about her. And um, this impulse to describe and delight in all the beautiful parts and qualities of someone that we love, I think it's a universal experience. It's an aspect of love and the experience of love that we haven't yet touched on in this series on the Song of Songs. The truth is that romantic love in particular, but actually all kinds of love in their own way, are bound up with the feeling that the person that we love is beautiful or attractive or adorable or worthy of love. It's a cliche that we know for a husband or wife to describe their partner as the most beautiful woman in the world or the most handsome man that there is, even though, of course, objectively, it can only be one person who meets that description. <laughs> but that's how people feel when they're in love. And not just in romantic love. Most people will, with children will know that your own child always appears particularly cute to you. They're the best best-looking baby in the world, even if they have a face that only a mother could love, as we say. That's the point. Um, and one of the signs of love over time, though, is also that people that are perhaps not even particularly beautiful by objective standards seem to us to become more lovable and beautiful over time as we get to know them and feel different senses of uh, attachment to them. And there's a saying that we all know, which is up here on the screen, beauty is in the eye of the beholder which is the idea that it's the appreciation that we have for someone that makes them seem beautiful to us, even when that might not be obvious to others. 
Lovers often go so far as to idealise their partner and to describe them as absolute perfection, not lacking in any kind of beauty. So the lover in this chapter says to his, uh, his uh, beloved, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You're altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So what I want to say today as we look at this is that I think we can understand, or the reason this is in the Bible, is that this is actually a picture for us of how God views us, all of us. That God, our creator, views us in his love as absolutely beautiful and attractive and has a deep appreciation for how amazingly he has made us. And so one of the experiences that Christian people should have or can have is the experience of basking in the warm glow of God's adoration. Now, that sounds nice, um, but I actually think it's quite a difficult topic for some people or an idea to take on. I think that perhaps even as I've said that, that God views us in this way, some of us might have thought about reasons why that might not be true. And I'm going to spend a bit of my time today describing the difficulties we have with this idea that God genuinely thinks we're great. He genuinely thinks that we're great. And that's why the message from the Song of Songs can be really helpful for us to take in. Because I want to address the reality that in my experience, many people, even long-term Christian believers, live with the fundamental view that God does not like them very much or even has a negative view of them. Or that the Bible teaches us that there is a kind of cold or begrudging aspect to God's love for us. You know? So while he may love us and care for us in an abstract sense, equally he has this fundamental disfavour and disappointment with us about how we've turned out. And a desire to judge and punish us for that. And the picture that many of us may have of God, uh, come from many places, is not this infatuated lover from the Song of Songs, but perhaps someone like an angry sports coach or a stern disciplinarian father, or a watchful boss who wants to make sure I'm not gonna, you're not going to get away with anything. Um, or at best, an impartial judge who is weighing up everything we do and we have to be very careful not to get on the wrong side. And I'll think in a minute about where that picture of God might come from, and I think it is a surprising place indeed. But firstly, I just we need to say the biblical picture of God is not like this. In many places, it is made very plain. In Genesis 1 and 2, we hear that God carefully forms human beings out of the dust of the earth to be good and glorious creatures who reflect his image back to him. He is like a sculptor who makes a beautiful work of art out of clay and breathes his life into it, his own image. And for instance, in Psalm 139, it speaks about God as this master craftsman and weaver who shaped us in our mother's womb. So in verse 13 to 14 of that psalm, it says, of God, it says, For it was you who formed my inward parts, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and I know that very well. And of course, as Jesus said, this is the image of God that he gave us, is of the warm, loving father who carries his children, who cares for them, who loves them. That is what God's love is like. So how does God actually feel about us? Well, the Bible says he feels like a parent watching over their child while they sleep at night. Or like an artist hanging her masterpiece on the wall. 
or like friends on a football team who've won a great victory together at the end of the season. And yes, like a lover admiring the beautiful woman that he loves. And like the same woman admiring her man as well, as we read about in other parts of the Song of Songs. And this experience of knowing how precious and wonderful we are to God is one of the feelings that should be the birthright of every child of God and every human being. So the question I th- to me is, why do so many of us not experience this then? I think there are at least two reasons, and one of them is to do with our own experience of ourselves, and the other is to do with external influences in our lives. So one of the things that you might think, or might just drift in your mind, when we hear that God is essentially saying to us, like the lover in Song of Songs, that there is no flaw in you, is that, well, of course there are flaws in me. It's not true. I sin, I fail, I have all these parts about me that I don't like. There are lots of flaws in me, and we all know the flaws of other people too, don't we? Are there no flaws in people who commit murders and other terrible crimes? Is God like a lover who looks with rose-coloured glasses at us and doesn't see people how they really are? Is when we see flaws, do we see us how we really are? So I think we need to be more clear then about who we are as humans and what it means for God to love us and value us in this way. Because I think that the, the thing to understand is that for us, as hu- for human beings, in the biblical view, perfection, perfection is always a relative category, and that's just because we're created. We're limited in our time. And so perfection, or the sense of what we should and can be, it's always going to be something that we are moving towards in the future. Perfection for humans is a movement towards something and one that we believe goes on forever. In Genesis, it says that we were made by God as very good and we're supposed to move towards becoming even more good, truly good. So for God, I think this perfection, the flawlessness that he sees in us is the eye of love that sees his plans for us in creation and what we're becoming and what we will become. There is no flaw in that. I mean, just think about how we think about our our children to understand this. Children are very good as they are. There's nothing wrong with being immature and growing, but they are actually growing into what they should be. And we want them to. We don't say they're bad because they're growing, that there's flaws into them. That's just how it means, what it means to be human. So I think God does see the fact that there is no flaw in us in his plan. But of course, sometimes things go wrong with us, and we know on the way as we grow. This is where sin comes into the picture. What happens is that in our lives, we often make choices that in a sense disfigure the beauty that God has placed in us, like someone who might cut their face. Um, you know, Sin is essentially the way in which we distort the beauty in us that, and, and other people around us, the beauty that God loves and sees. And so one of the reasons we might find it hard to accept that God thinks we're amazing, God thinks we're flawless, is that we're aware of what we've done to ourselves. We're aware of our sin and our failures. But the fact is, even with that, those things are not what we truly are and they're not what we will be. And so they don't get in the way of God's love for us. And what he wants is not to focus on them, but to heal them and to correct them. And where we have to grow and learn, he wants that too. And so if we look ahead to Easter, as I said, this is the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. A restoration of humanity to the image of God, as we're supposed to be. 
you know, another time is the time to talk about how we experience our limitations and repentance and confession and the need for that, which is true. The seriousness of sin, but not, not today, not when you read the Song of Songs. Fundamentally, we need to hear, God thinks that we're great. God thinks that you are amazing. There is no flaw in you. So that's one thing that we might do to ourselves to not hear that message. The other thing that gets in the way, perhaps, of experiencing this warm glow of adoration from God is that his, his words of love are not the only words in our lives that speak to us about whether or not we're lovable. All of us know that there are words that come to us from outside that do not say how great, flawling and amazing that we are. And some of those come from other people around us, don't they? Perhaps our family or other people uh, as we've grown up around us or people at school People at work, perhaps people at church or in other places. People who do judge and condemn us, pointing out things in us that are not perfect yet or might be seen as flaws. So you might hear, we might hear, you are ugly, you are stupid, you are too quiet, you are too loud, you are clumsy, you are weak, you are lazy, you will never succeed, you will never do anything right, you are useless. Or worse things than this. Social media has, of course, opened up a Pandora's box of negative words for many of us, both to give and to receive. Criticism and hatred, freely expressed, anonymously and instantly. And it's particularly a problem for young people, as we know, who are vulnerable to that kind of word. But wherever they come from, those words are constant negative messages to tell us, you are flawed, you are not loved, you are not acceptable. It's easy to believe this then when it meets up with an inner sense of imperfection or weakness. And that noise might drown out the words of God's love and affirmation of us. And you know, the Bible would tell us that the ultimate source of those messages and those words is actually the devil himself. Um, one of the names of the devil in the Bible is the Satan, which is the word for adversary or the accuser, um, which is like a legal term of someone like a prosecutor in a court. Now, whoever or whatever the Satan is today is not important. He is, that's something of a mystery in the Bible. But at the least, we know there is an adversary of God who is also described in the New Testament as the accuser of God's people. An accuser in the sense of someone who makes a case against us. So Satan acts like a prosecuting lawyer against humanity, pointing out all our mistakes, all our flaws, in order that it will appear that God has failed in his creation. And salvation. He has failed to create a beautiful and good world. And the speech of Satan then is a constant flow of accusation against God's children. And of course, he often hits upon real things that we've done wrong. That's clever, isn't it? Um, and makes it seem like this means that to God and other people, we will never be lovable and that we are completely broken and useless. Not worth trying. We need to recognise, I think, that this is Satan's voice when it comes because many people have come to believe that this is the voice of God and that this is what God sounds like when he speaks to people. That God desires that we be riddled with guilt and shame so we'll try harder to do good and to be good. That is not God, though. And when we take on that voice with other people, perhaps to try to shape them up or set them straight, we are speaking Satan's words as well. 
Now, of course, God does often point out to things, us things in our lives that need to change, but the words of the Holy Spirit are usually gentle words of love and care because God wants us to be healed. It's a different, it's a different word. And Jesus came to share our shame and our sins so we could be perfect again. So the Song of Songs, I think, shows us that behind the veil of negativity that we experience in life are God's real words to us. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now, I know that for perhaps Aussie blokes, it might not ring well in our ears to use that image, um, to be told how beautiful we are. So you don't need to use that word necessarily when you think about it. The point is that God is saying, you are good, you are okay, you're all right. And to hear that and to take it in is an invitation to understand that who we are, just as we are, is a delight to God. And that we contribute personally to the infinite joy of the Almighty God merely by existing. The image that we read about in the Song of Songs is that our heart, I think, is like a garden or a, a storehouse full of beautifully fragrant spices. The words used, henna and nard, saffron, cinnamon, incense, myrrh and aloe. And I don't know what half of those things are, but they sound nice. <laughs> but it is, he says, like a selection of the finest and most fragrant spices that you can imagine that delight us. I asked you earlier to call to mind your own favourite fragrance. Each of those smells is unique with its own flavour. It brings pleasure in its own way and for its own reason, just by existing and being what it is, it gives off this fragrance. And so the young man in the Song of Songs urges his beloved to open herself up and to spread her fragrance everywhere so that he and everyone can enjoy it. He says, don't be like a locked up garden. Open yourself up. And I think this is a clear picture of God's call to us to open our hearts to him. For the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow over us and to share and stir up the wonderful things inside us that are there and to spread them around. This is what God wants us to do. We have wonderful things to share with the world. All of us do. So the woman says, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. A number of years ago, I uh, visited the town of Sorrento, um, which is on the coast in Italy. And as I came in on the road into town on the bus, I noticed this uh, lovely fragrance in the air blowing in through the windows. Um, and I saw, I looked out, that the town is full of citrus trees, oranges and lemons, and they're all planted along the side of the road as you come in. And as you come past into the town, the wind blows this fresh scent of all these things over you. It's a wonderful thing. Um, and that's a picture, then, of, of the enjoyment, I think, that God has of us when we open our hearts to him and that others can have too. And the sense of our goodness and that God appreciates us, it's helpful for our present well-being, of course, but it's also part of the central Christian message of the good news of Jesus because what in Jesus, what we see is someone who is genuinely flawless and beloved by God, and that's obvious to everyone, the beautiful picture, when Jesus was baptised, the voice of his father came from heaven. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is how God feels about his children. And Jesus' life, which he gave to us, it restores the image of God in us and opens us up again to, to live this out, to, to move more and more into perfection. 
And in time, I think each of us will come to learn our own special personal gift and identity from God and our own fragrance, which is just ours and no one else's. In Revelation 2, chapter 17, Jesus speaks to the church in the town of Pergamum. And he says to them, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The one promise of the Christian life is that one day we will know what we're really meant to be, our own personal signature and fragrance from God and what he has always planned us to become. He will reveal that to us. So I think for us there are a few applications we might take away from this today. The main one I think is it's important for us to restore and discern in ourselves the voice of God that speaks to our heart about his appreciation of us. And so I'd encourage you to spend some time today or this week actually writing out for yourself or reflecting on the good things that you know about yourself and thank God for them. But also just to thank God for the fact of your life and to give thanks that you are good and God has made you. Because thanksgiving is the opposite of a critical attitude that cuts down. And if we do this, it might also become easier to acknowledge our sin before God if we find that hard to do, because we know that the attitude in which he receives confession is that of love and healing, not judgment and condemnation. We don't need to be afraid. It's also encourage you to take time to affirm other people this week. The voice of the accuser is very strong in our culture today, and we need consciously to be people who speak in a different way to each other. The church should not be a place of condemnation, and I would urge you to reflect on where your words to other people or about other people, where do they come from? Um, God genuinely delights in other people, and he sees goodness in them that we may not. Our task is to see it. So we need to open our hearts and minds to this as well. So you might put in your mind today someone that you're going to speak appreciative words over this week to affirm something about them that is good. And to finish this reflection today, I'd just like us to take some time just to sit with God for a moment and to listen to him. Maybe take in the fragrance around you and remember that we are a wonderful fragrance to God, our Father. So I invite you just to sit for a moment in quiet and listen to his words and then I'm going to pray for us before we move on for the rest of our service. Let's just be quiet for a moment and listen. Today we thank you, Lord, that you have made us in your own image wonderful without flaw in your plan. And we pray today that your words of love, which pour out unceasingly from the beginning of our creation, would be heard by us, that our hearts would be full of your admiration, of your love and affirmation, and that we would be conduits of that love towards others around us. I pray with thanks in the work that Jesus Christ has done to bring us back to the fullness of our image in you and that we would take hold of that by faith today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.